I don't see any amount of negative press as anything that would deter him. Hello there and welcome back to the Sports Pro Podcast. My name is George Breer. I'm a senior content manager here at Sports Pro and I will be your host as always for today's episode. Now we come to you in January and for many people, January is about looking forward, setting resolutions. But this week, I'm delighted to say that we're going to be reviewing one of the major moments of last year's sporting calendar. As I'm joined as always by Tom Bassam, our news editor here at Sports Pro, And alongside him, we have a very special guest. I'd like to welcome Jamie Gardner, the chief sports reporter at PA Media, who spent a significant portion of last November on the ground in Qatar, looking at the FIFA World Cup for that year. And Jamie has also been a regular contributor over the past few months to the Sports Pro website. Well, Tom and Jamie, delighted to have you here and welcome to the show. Hello, George. Delighted to be back. Nice to see you, Jamie. Thank you. Cheers, George. Happy New Year. Uh, happy New Year to you too. How how was your Christmas break? Was it a uh, struggle readjusting after your period out in the Middle East? Yeah, I, I think from the time I got back until about the last week or so, I've been struck down by a cold, which I put down to the incredible change in temperature <laughs> that I experienced coming back. It was it was pretty crazy. And as always, as a as a sports reporter, a nice long break between the World Cup and the resumption of the Premier League—a <laughs> full what six days, seven days until you're straight back on the horse. Yeah, yeah. It, incredible. I mean, it, it was just just relentless, isn't it? Football, it's incredible, really, how... And I think you have to take your hat off to the players as much as anything, how they have gone straight back in without missing a beat, really. But I guess, as we'll talk about later, it's interesting to see how that mid-season World Cup has actually gone down. I mean, there's a fair few positives out of it, dare, dare I say. I'm not sure it's what the leagues want to hear, but, but no, I think, it's, uh, I think it went quite well. And May entice FIFA to have a, a look at it again. Well, it's in- interesting to hear you say that. Obviously, we, we've, on this podcast and across a, a lot of channels, across Western media, really, there's there's been, in many ways, a, a negative portrayal of the tournament and what it represents. But having been, you know, a, a man on the ground and having seen it firsthand and close up, how were your experiences uh, at the tournament? Um, I would say, personally, um, when you talk about your encounters with, with uh, the people on the ground, be they... Uh, the locals or with, with FIFA people, all very positive. Um, everyone I came across was was really um, uh, happy happy to see you. The volunteering staff that they had there were great. And so in that sense, very positive. It ran very well. I mean, there was a few initial glitches around the opening ceremony. I think it was a bit massive traffic jams on, on the road to the Albate Stadium. I think the entire country was trying to get to that match. Uh, and I think it struggled a bit. Uh, but after that game, it all felt like... The, the logistics ran pretty well from a media perspective anyway. It was a positive experience, but at the same time, you're in these incredible stadiums, but you know how they got there, how they came to be built, and that's in, in the back of your mind the whole time. Whereas with many of these tournaments, you you leave, the, fair enough, inside the venue, that they're all dressed in a certain way with UEFA branding or FIFA branding in this case, but then you come outside and you feel like you are in that that place and it, and it feels like a unique tournament in that place it did it did feel a little like everything had been purpose-built for the world cup well i mean i think the best way i can think to describe it is a bit like a theme park imagine like a gianni infantino fever dream of what fifa disneyland would look like that effectively what was what it was you were 
The stadiums were very close together, which again, great as a, as a journalist, you could get around and do two games in a day comfortably. It kind of lacked a bit of lacked soul a bit. The fans injected some of that, I think. Uh, well, certain groups of fans in particular. But it, I did sort of wonder how infused the local population was. And I guess one gauge of that was a few of us remarked on that there was nowhere to watch games outside of the fan park or actually being in the stadium. There weren't, obviously there's no no pubs and bars like we would have here, but even restaurants and cafes there, there didn't seem to be anyone sort of latching onto the experience and having screens. It was very difficult if you weren't there to actually to, to see the games, which it, it felt like the country wasn't necessarily embracing it. And I don't, I don't know, it just felt almost a bit surface level. And if you scratched below it, there wasn't a great deal to it. You sort of said Gianni Infantino's fever dream in terms of like the fact that it was a very kind of blank canvas for them to work from. But do you feel like that suited FIFA? That's kind of what they wanted from this experience? Or do you think that they wanted more of those kind of organic elements that you're describing there? So like the, the, the sort of people watching in cafes and like the general population taking more of an interest? Or do you feel like they were kind of happy with the fact that they basically kind of were able to turn it into FIFA land for a month? Um, that's a very good question, actually, Tom. I think from FIFA's point of view, the tournament ran very well. Obviously, we mentioned about the the winter element. I think there'll be lots of things they will take from that World Cup. They they will use as a template for the future. The difficulty is, yeah, I think it, it did lack that that authenticity, and and that that will be something they'll get criticised for if in the same circumstances again. The talk, it felt that everything was kind of purpose built for the World Cup. Did it suit them? I'm not altogether sure that it did because, I mean, as, as you'll remember, there were lots of challenges for FIFA very early on, especially where it felt as though they weren't really in control of their own tournament. Um, although although it did feel, as we've said, like a theme park and the layout felt very ideal for FIFA and, and like they might have dreamt it, the the sort of loss of control at that last stage was was definitely something that we all felt, particularly around the Budweiser story um, and also the armband story as well it felt as though FIFA weren't in control at that point at all and kind of had to go along with whatever whatever they were being told really from the Qatari government and was there a palpable tension on the ground around um, that relationship between host country and FIFA or is that more you know FIFA knows where its bread's being buttered so to speak yes I think I think if there was any antagonism it was kind of more directed at the media for kind of highlighting it rather than the the tension itself. I, I think perhaps FIFA was expecting some of what happened to a degree. And obviously we're going to say, as Gianni Infantino did, that FIFA are in control. We have the ultimate say on these matters. But looking at it as an observer, it didn't really feel that way. But yeah, I think any any tension that there was was kind of directed outwards towards the media for, for having the temerity to cover it effectively rather than that let that happen behind the scenes a couple of things i'd like to dig into on that do you feel like firstly do you feel like the loss of control for fifa do you think that's something that they, they might try and legislate for a bit more at future tournaments so i mean i don't know how easy that would be when you're splitting them between three host countries in in 2026 but do you feel like they're going to say like no you don't get to control these things to the local organizing committee there and also in regard to that western media coverage do you feel like that that criticism or that pushback from the Qataris was like fair enough? Was it, was it right that Western media has been sort of 
applying the level of scrutiny that it has. I mean, just from my perspective, I would say it is right, but then we also need to maintain that for future tournaments too. But I'd be interested to hear your take from someone who was there and on the ground. And I guess actually part of the Western media. Yeah, yeah in, indeed. Uh, and on the first point about the, the agreements with the local organisers, it will be interesting to see whether much changes on that going forward. Obviously, I don't in, in expect they'll encounter any issues with, with Budweiser when they take the tournament to North America. But in, a, in, similar, <laughs> in similar circumstances, again, perhaps if they go to the Arab world, maybe they will look at it again. But equally, maybe it's something that FIFA is prepared to overlook for the right host and a host that is prepared to put on a World Cup. I mean, let's be honest, it's not something that many countries can take on, certainly single-handedly anymore. I'd be very surprised to see many future World Cups with a single host. But any host is really going to have to have quite deep pockets. And maybe FIFA would see it that part of getting that tournament over the line is to give the host country more of a say. I don't think they would have, would ever want a repeat of what happened in Qatar with that last second change on on the sale of alcohol. But equally, if, if if they have a little less autonomy, but in return for countries being willing to step forward and host and build stunning stadiums that that you know their their great tournament can be played in, then perhaps that is something they will um, perhaps overlook or be prepared to let slide. On on the point about the media coverage, I'm probably bound to say this, aren't I? But I think generally very fair and balanced on the issues in Qatar. I mean. It felt over the few weeks building up to the tournament and during it that a lot of it was almost being portrayed as racism towards the Arab world and and that the same sort of treatment wouldn't be handed down to to a host from a different part of the world. But I suppose that tournament was uniquely in the Arab world and some of those issues were unique to the Arab world. And I do think that the coverage of the Budweiser story wasn't so much centred on outrage at the fact that fans wouldn't be able to buy beer anymore. I don't know when maybe some of the tabloids went down that route. I don't think anyone objected to the idea of there not being beer there. I think it was from the uh, other reporters that I was speaking to, the bigger issue was that loss of control. It was, this has happened so late on, it seems very strange that FIFA has allowed this to happen. Who's really in control of this tournament? And then that theme kind of continued. Uh, There was obviously the armband story where it clearly seemed that FIFA wanted to protect local sensitivities around LGBTQ rights. So I don't think there was any kind of imbalance there in the coverage. And I think a lot of it, I think a lot of it was looking at that relationship between the host country and FIFA. And I think, I think the coverage had always kind of been fairly balanced in the years leading up as well. Obviously the coverage of migrant worker rights, people have reflected about how that's improved um, certainly, but, it, we're only reporting what the human rights organisations say when they suggest that there's an awful long way to go still, even even after the World Cup. And there was plenty of positive stuff written as well by the Western media, particularly around, I suppose, the fan experience getting around Qatar, as we've talked about, the metro system generally was very good. Quality of the football, the fact that it was mid-season, perhaps that helped rather than having it at the end of the season when players were tired. Um, and also the, the positive impact of taking away a lot of that alcohol and the impact of the ban, the friendlier atmosphere at matches and whether that's something that isn't necessarily a bad thing and that should perhaps be embraced. I wanted to 
pick up a, a bit on some of those early points that you mentioned around the Budweiser partnership and also the controversy around the armband. It, it was also a time where there were some reports in the media that some Qatari officials were questioning whether or not this is even the right decision to have bid for the tournament and whether really in, in light of the Western scrutiny in particular that, that it was a sensible decision. It's probably fair to say that it was smoother sailing from that point onwards. What was your sense on the ground of the point of view from local organisers of how successful the tournament was by its conclusion? Do you think it, it served a lot of the purposes that it sought out to achieve from the get-go? It, it did feel, certainly towards the end, and I think Morocco's success helped in this, that it genuinely was a World Cup for the Arab world and that World Cups could be played outside of the sort of traditional Western world and you don't need to have alcohol as part of the football fan experience. It can be done a different way. I think they'll have felt encouraged to look at other events. I mean, they are, they're definitely thinking about an Olympic bid. Quite sure how that will work in terms of climate and everything else and, and how that would go down and whether they'd be prepared, have the appetite to do that after 12 years of almost unrelenting criticism over the World Cup. But I think it certainly put Qatar on the map in a generally positive way. I think a lot of the criticism that they had, they must have anticipated and from the quarters that it came. But yeah, I don't, I don't think it will have put them off looking at events like this again in the future. And I think they will look at it on the whole and on balance as, as a successful operation in terms of a, a nation building exercise, which is what this was. You know, this was always kind of government driven, much more so than perhaps other tournaments have been where it's more the football association this was very much from the very top in qatar this decision to bid so i i think they would they would be satisfied and that they would not be deterred from looking at doing something like this again it's a sort of interesting way of thinking about it isn't it like so i i think traditionally like you usually come to these at the end of these events and we talk about legacy and what that kind of what that means for the tournament post but almost here it's like what this has meant in building it ahead of time as opposed to what come, kind of comes afterwards because you, you've ended up with a yeah as you said like a, a very complete um, transport network and much more advanced like ability to be a tourism destination too I don't think Qatar would probably measure it in the same way of like what was the what was the economic impact of this tournament as opposed to what you usually kind of get from a post-event report where someone's saying well it, it brought in x amount to this country and x amount in local revenue for them it was I guess more about as you say, that macro picture of like building up a positioning for uh, for Qatar in the in the global sports ecosystem, and also for yeah, kind of changing the perception of the Arab world a bit. Was that kind of the sense that you got from the from the organisers there? That's what they were talking about, as opposed to like this means we're going to have X amount of uh, new uh, of young people playing football after this event, or was was there an element of that too? No, I think I think absolutely very different from let's say any kind of event that would be staged here. And when you think about how people think about the legacy of London 2012, for instance, it's all around participation and what the kind of public benefits were. I think it was more a show of strength, a kind of, this is where we are. We are in a very powerful position in geopolitical terms. We're able to put on a World Cup. We may be this very small country in terms of area, but we are we are an economic powerhouse to be, to be reckoned with. And I think from that sense... The fact that they were able to host that World Cup among so much scepticism and so much criticism, I think I think they will take great encouragement from it, and perhaps look to look to kind of bid for other sporting events in the future. 
I mean, I think they're already looking at taking on the Asian Cup in 2024. So that keeps the ball rolling. I do. I, I think the country's now set up. It has that legacy. And obviously some of the stadiums are kind of being downgraded and, and in some cases completely dismantled. But there's definitely a sporting infrastructure there and so much other infrastructure like the Metro built almost for the purpose of the World Cup that it would almost seem crazy if they if they didn't look to think, right, well, we've had a World Cup. What are the next logical steps we can take? How else can we bolster Qatar's global reputation, really? Um, sport is a great way to do that. It brings eyeballs onto the country. There was a lot of negative publicity, but nothing that I don't think they were prepared for, really. It's probably no, nothing new to see sport and particularly major events being used as a vehicle to increase political capital. But probably this tournament marks a, a new level of transparency over that goal and that aim. It's been pretty clear from commentators and even really from those involved that this is the primary reason behind the exercise. In terms of its legacy, do you see it ushering in a new era of sort of naked political ambition when it comes to hosting major events and therefore a sort of a shift to similar similar nations and similar nations and their journey of nation building, hosting these types of events and having more sort of top level government involvement in the hosting process and bidding process? I think so. I mean, I probably better to speak on this from, from FIFA's perspective than the IOC's, but from conversations that I had out there, particularly for as long as Gianni Infantino is is FIFA president, he very much sees that football can be a catalyst for change. He doesn't see that you should necessarily have a, a perfect human rights record. You should be a country that has a fully functioning and mature democracy. He, he believes that football can help promote that and, and bring that about. So if you're a country that perhaps wants to put yourself on the map, through football, I don't think it would necessarily put the FIFA administration off if, if you were a country that weren't necessarily high up on the list of countries that, that observe human rights correctly and, and so on. I, I don't think that would ever put this current FIFA administration off someone bidding. So if you were someone seeking the, the, a World Cup hosting as a way to build a nation and build credibility and boost your reputation, then I think there is certainly an interest within FIFA to do that. I mean, Infantino even talked in that very long press conference that he gave at the start of the tournament about how he would like, to, he thought that perhaps the issue of women's rights in Iran could be improved by giving them a tournament, to, to give you an example. Similarly with North Korea, he talked about how he'd like to take events there. So he doesn't see anywhere as being out of bounds in, ter in terms of taking tournaments to them. So if there's a country that has a particular will to do that, then I think there would be an open door at FIFA to listen. Whether, whether the member associations would back it, it is another question, but certainly the FIFA administration, very open to listening to everybody. I guess quite a lot of Western perspective coming out of that tournament was that, oh, this will probably be a bit of a warning to FIFA not to not to take like their, their major events to, to places like this because of the like, kind of heavy, heavy scrutiny they come under. But from what you've just been saying there, it sounds like that kind of 2030 Saudi bid where it's also alongside Greece and Egypt and willing to fund infrastructure projects in those two countries alongside infrastructure projects in its own countries uniting a few different regions that actually sounds again a bit like a Gianni Infantino fever dream do you think that he will manage to convince people that that's the case if that or that 
or the, the FIFA membership actually still stands kind of a little bit, will be a bit more wary after Qatar about those, uh, yeah, taking it to those slightly more, um, those states where, yeah, the rights aren't a, a priority for the government, like human rights aren't a priority for the government or women's rights aren't a priority for the government and democracy isn't even a priority for the government. Um, how it was explained to me in terms of, I mean, I speak to human rights organisations who say that these these sorts of bids shouldn't even be considered, that especially with, with, when there is the existence of a human rights framework that FIFA has. But the FIFA human rights framework and bid reports on on countries will just consider human rights as one aspect of that. And they may red flag a tournament in, in their report to the association and say, look, we, we don't think that the situation there regarding human rights is good. That will not stop people from bidding and it will not stop member associations from voting for them if they can overlook that. If there are other advantages to that bid, be they financial, be they sporting or anything else, then it's not going to rule anyone out from bidding. And I, and I think if the, the upsides are strong enough, it, again, in terms of strengthening the financial reserves of FIFA and greater sort of solidarity payments to the associations, and I think they probably would overlook the human rights side of things. And I think with a bid, I mean, if the Saudi, Greece and Egypt bid that's being talked about, it, you can see how that could have a lot of political support, really. I mean, it cuts across three confederations. So, I mean, obviously there's be split support in Europe from for Greece's side of it, but there would be the whole Asian confederation perhaps behind Saudi. And, and then you've also got another chance for Africa to at least co-host a, a World Cup. So... There'd be an awful lot going for a, a twenty thirty Saudi bid, really. It certainly shouldn't be ruled out. I think there's so much going on with that, and and probably that wider relationship between FIFA and, and Saudi Arabia that means it would be very naive to think at this stage that this is a two horse race between Spain and Portugal on the one hand and South America on the other. And, and will that be? Do you think that'll be FIFA's legacy from this tournament? Is opening the the pathways and the and the doorways to those types of bids? Definitely. I mean, that that to me, I, I think that is Gianni Infantino absolutely sees that as his role is is taking the game to countries that other sports organisations and federations almost might be afraid to touch. He doesn't really see anywhere as toxic and off limits at all. He just doesn't see that. He sees that. Football is the thing that can break those barriers down, rightly or wrongly. I mean, you get massively criticised for that. And I think he already accepts that he's kind of, he's not going to take the certainly the Western media, the UK media with him on that. But I don't think he cares. And I think, he's, as you can see, he's got the support base. He's not going to be challenged at the for the FIFA presidency at the next election. So he, I think he's very confident in his political base, really, and, and what he sees as his mission. I don't see... Any amount of negative press from the UK, from Australia, from the US as anything that would, would deter him from that. To go back to some of your personal experiences on the ground and um, at the tournament, I'm interested to, to hear about sort of the, the local reaction to the tournament, the enthusiasm that was there from sort of local Qatari fans and, you know, the average local Qatari population. What was the reception for the tournament like from, from that fan base? There were obviously there were a lot of uh, local fans who who seemed particularly when the Qatar themselves seemed to struggle on the pitch didn't do very well they were out after two games you could sense there was local support people would latch on to another team be that England be that Mexico there was an awful lot of that but it seemed to sort of lack mass enthusiasm for the, for the tournament from 
the local population. It did almost feel as though if you took away the visiting fans, there wouldn't have been much much of an atmosphere and much of a buzz about the place. That was, to, from what I could see, largely generated by the visiting fans, whereas you would expect normally in a, a tournament that the, the locals would really, really sort of get behind it. I didn't ever get that sense. And I must admit, in terms of native Qataris, I don't necessarily think that I, I saw many people. It, it was primarily you know, migrant workers that you would see as you were going around and perhaps supporting the teams. Hard to gauge, of course, but but yeah, I just didn't really sense that overall level of enthusiasm on a mass scale, really, anyway. And I think, if you, yeah, as I say, if you took out uh, visiting supporters, I think it would have felt a very flat tournament. But thankfully, I mean, it was saved by the likes of the Moroccan fans, Argentina, Mexico, who were absolutely incredible all the way through. Interesting, that, uh, your, your sort of comment about migrant workers being the sort of the most visible, but was there also a case of them being slightly hidden away too in that you weren't given perhaps like the best you weren't able to access them in in the ways that maybe you would in a, a country with greater press freedom shall we say there was some really great reporting done by new york times the athletic where they really where they sort of went and found found those migrant camps and talked to those peoples on the ground but was that kind of was that quite hard to do from from a from a reporting perspective well, it certainly wasn't facilitated, put it that way. Similarly with the um, some of the fan parks at the beginning and, and some of the uh, facilities that, that were there for the money that people had paid, um, which which weren't really up to scratch. Yeah, you're right about that. I mean, you, you only really saw migrant workers kind of in their working positions, really, and you could speak to them as, as you were moving around or wherever you were, you could talk to people about their particular personal circumstances. But but yeah, there wasn't there wasn't really there was certainly no real encouragement of doing that at all from 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 the local government, which still to me is strange. This is a country that has kind of been built on the efforts of these migrant workers. That there wouldn't be that country there without without their input, and it needn't necessarily be something to be hidden away. That it's a country that has a very small native population. But I, th- I think you don't see about it because they're not being treated in in the greatest way, really. And, and yes, it's not certainly not something that the that the Qataris were keen to let journalists see. So I think it's all credit to those that did get out to to see the conditions that migrant workers actually live in, and how that differs from the seven star hotels that that FIFA are staying in, and and you know the comparative luxury that anyone who from the West who's at the tournament is experiencing, and how that differed. That would have been a good legacy from the World Cup. And I think Qatar and FIFA will still say that it is, that, that conditions have improved for migrant workers. But I just don't really think that it's gone as far as it could, certainly with the, the obvious wealth that there is in Qatar. It could be a standard bearer that human rights organisations hold up as a great example, but they're nowhere, clearly absolutely nowhere near that at this point in time. And did you see being on the ground a, a lot of the case for the the world cup being hosted there was being a catalyst for change and accelerating some of that change taking place did you see any of the early signs that that could be the future and a potential legacy for the tournament even if that's not at the pace that some might wish at this time um on the issue of migrant workers possibly yes i mean they talk about the ilo having a, a permanent office in doha these are all positive steps that they're clearly not going as far as as the human rights organisations feel that they should be. 
So I think on, on that front, and as Qatar always points out, we're, we're not the only country in this region where migrant workers are employed. But you know, the, the emphasis has always been on Qatar because we're the hosts of the World Cup. You're only really looking at us. We're the ones in the spotlight. And, and yes, they rightly are. And I think, I think it has improved a lot of migrant workers, but it's just still such a long way to go. And it needs journalists to keep that pressure on and, and kind of not look away when the tournament ends. And I think that people will. I think that will be an issue that people continue to look at. But on the issue of, sort of LGBT rights, I don't see there ever being a positive legacy out of this tournament for that because it was never acknowledged by, by the hosts. It was, it was almost as though that community doesn't exist in Qatar, which it does. Uh, so, so there's no way they can bring about improvement for a community that they don't acknowledge exists. And I think from the people that I've spoken to before the tournament, there's the concern that if anything, it could worsen their situation because of the spotlight that it's placed on it that there's a few fears almost of backlash from from the tournament. So I think certainly from my perspective and, and what I will be looking to cover in terms of Qatar's legacy, it will be that. It will be, has there been any improvement or actually have, have things even got worse in, in the kind of six months, the year after the tournament? What can be done to improve that? And I suppose if you're talking about other nations building and perhaps saying, well, we can use the World Cup as a catalyst for change, it, I think... Perhaps one thing you would want FIFA to do if they are going to go down that route is to actually hold people accountable on all those areas that a country is felt to be lacking in. Like the, like the LGBT rights issue, I don't think FIFA are going to be checking in in three or four years' time to say, well, what is the situation like for the LGBT community? I think they will have moved on. And that's probably where Infantino's kind of we will use football as a force for good argument falls down because I'm not sure they follow through. And certainly, I don't get the sense that they will follow through in Qatar, particularly on on the LGBT issue. They may on migrant workers, uh, but but not on uh, LGBT. Well, Jamie, a, a lot of our commentary and and commentary in general on the World Cup has taken place from afar. So it's been a, a real privilege to get your insights from being on the ground and from experiencing the tournament on a day to day basis. So thank you very much for for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure. No problem. Thanks, George. Thank you, Tom. Much appreciated. Get ready for Sports Pro's Ignition 2023 virtual event, where sports tech comes to life. Join us online on the 8th of February and discover the most cutting-edge advancements and innovations in sports tech. Experience a virtual hub of keynotes, demo sprints and tech providers. In addition to expert insight from the PGA Tour, the Cleveland Cavaliers, Overtime and Liquidity team, you will discover the most disruptive new startups to invest in right now. Register for free today at ignition.sport. Network, learn and engage with your next sports partner. For part two of the podcast, we are going to have a chat with the Sports Pro Editorial Director, Mike Long. Hello, Mike. Welcome back to the Sports Pro Podcast. Um, a familiar face, or or not, as, you, as it may be, with the audio format. Um, the reason we've got you on is to talk about a feature which was published on the Sports Pro website yesterday, penned by yourself. The, the Qatar 22 World Cup was a real long journey for you, as not just sort of a like a a landmark in terms of the, the sports industry and, and in the sort of global football ecosystem, but 
it's been something that's kind of dominated conversation throughout your whole time at Sports Pro. Um, before we got, kind of get into the nitty gritty of the feature itself, can you just get up and give me your personal thoughts and reflections on that whole period leading up to the tournament and the, and the tournament itself? Yeah, as you say, I, I joined Sports Pro in the summer immediately following that uh, infamous vote in December 2010 when Qatar um, uh, was awarded the 2022 World Cup, obviously Russia being awarded 2018 at the same time. Um, and so, as you say, the, Qatar, the Qatari World Cup was always this thing that was just looming on the on the horizon, you know, a hugely long kind of lengthy run into it. And so we've been tracking it along the way. Obviously, there's been a huge amount of fallout from that vote since it took place. Uh, there have been official investigations. There have been allegations of bribery and corruption around that bidding process. There's been the downfall of Sepp Blatter and the so-called kind of quote-unquote old FIFA. There's been a huge amount of leadership upheaval uh, at FIFA. And the Qataris have been in the spotlight to some extent or another throughout the whole period. Um, huge backlash to the actual decision, as I said, but then a huge amount of scrutiny from organisations like Amnesty International and other human rights organisations and uh, campaigners and things like that. So it's just been this constant talking point. And we've gone through a number of Olympics and Winter Olympics and other World Cups during that time, but Qatar has always been there on the slate. I think the World Cup in many ways felt like a culmination of that that era, that the, the final kind of end point of the old FIFA. Uh, you can obviously talk a huge amount about whether FIFA has completely reformed off the back of it and, you know, the uh, I guess the similarities between the new FIFA and the old FIFA and, you know, things like that. But it feels like the World Cup finally happening, you know, it, it, it was a conclusion of sorts and it, it drew a line under under that whole tumultuous, controversial 12-year period that we're all kind of covering as, as uh, you know, people covering sport. And now weirdly, as about like a month on, or a little, little bit under a month on from the World Cup, very odd being in January, but we've had kind of a little bit of time to take stock about the World Cup and what it meant, not just in terms of footballing terms, I think it really delivered on the footballing side, but like for the industry, for your feature, you spoke to a number of like stakeholders within the industry itself. What was the kind of overall feeling you got from the people that you spoke to and like impressions yourself too? I think, um, you know, Everyone would agree this was a huge sporting success, this World Cup. I think once the sport did eventually get underway, whether or not we were all focused on the football, as Gianni Infantino wanted people to focus on, um, you know, the, the action on the pitch spoke for itself and the, the quality was fantastic from start to finish, you know, starting off with, you know, big nations ex- exiting early, you had Morocco's underdog run, you had the the kind of uh, Messi and Mbappe narrative permeating the whole tournament, you know, some great games there. So I think from a sporting perspective, you know, really successful. Uh, the consensus is that they, Qatar can't necessarily take credit for that, but this World Cup will go down and live long in the memory from a sporting perspective. From a kind of operational delivery perspective, I think, again, the consensus is that Qatar did a pretty good job all round, all things considered. I think they made a virtue of the fact that this was a very compact World Cup taking place in the smallest nation ever to host it. Uh, you could get to, you know, every stadium within an hour up from, from central Doha. You know, the transport networks held up. They were sometimes overcrowded, but generally did, you know, serve their purpose. The media facilities were fantastic. The stadiums, et cetera, et cetera. So all of those components were in place. But a lot of that comes down to 
the fact, I think, that Qatar drafted in a lot of overseas expertise to actually deliver the event and the ceremonies were run by an Italian firm, for example, and things like that. So they were, they weren't, it wasn't reliant upon them as uh, first time hosts to kind of actually deliver it from that perspective. But I think that, um, you know, the overarching narrative and that talk of potentially, you know, the World Cup shining a spotlight for sure on human rights issues and, and things like that within within the host nation and the potential that the tournament might have for change off the back of it. You know, there's there's been some fractional kind of changes, I think, from the Qatari government around the tournament, whether the tournament actually drove that and the international pressure and things like that is a is another matter. But I think the focus now is on the kind of longer longer term legacy of the of the tournament. Uh, from a infrastructural and a social perspective, you know, once the media circus packs up and moves on, you know, what is the pressure going to be like on on Qatar? So they, there's a lot of unknowns there. Um, there's a lot of, um, you know, work to be done clearly and progress to be made within the host nation around workers' rights and LGBTQ plus uh, rights and things like that. So there's, there's a lot of work to be done there. Infrastructurally, I think, um, you know, the tournament leaves a, a legacy, you know, the the organisers have made a point of the fact that they have plans in place to ensure there's no white elephants after the tournament. They're going to be repurposed. I think one of the stadiums is going to be dismantled altogether, um, but they're still going to be left with these phenomenally, you know, architecturally incredible stadiums, how they use those and how they use them as a platform to kind of attract new events and tourism and things like that to the country will be, I think will be a focus a little bit in a Qatari sense for, for the next 10 years, you know, um, you, they've got Formula One Grand Prix coming, they've got, you know, regional events, they've got other events coming that will fill out their schedule a little bit, but um, they've got, certainly got an overabundance of that infrastructure now. So I think that's a, a point that a lot of people have made is that distinction between the the kind of physical architectural legacy of the tournament and then the social legacy, you know, they, they're, they're quite different. One's fairly certain, one's, uh, there's a lot of questions to be answered there. But yeah, I think, and the other uh, quick takeaway, I think from purely from an objective perspective is that Infantino called it the best tournament ever. FIFA always talks up the success of the tournament. Obviously, it's its biggest money spinner, the Men's World Cup. They've spoken already of the fact that they've generated $7.5 billion in the four years leading up to Qatar. They're yet to actually do their financial report, but the World Cup will account for a huge amount of that. They sold all sponsorship inventory. So from a, from a commercial perspective, you know, clearly it's, a, it's um, a massive cash cow for FIFA and the international soccer community. So I think on balance, it was a successful tournament. But for a lot of people, there's huge question marks over whether it actually burnished a kind of positive image of Qatar, which is ultimately, I guess, part of the reason why they wanted to stage such an event. So, um, yeah, there's a lot, lot to still uh, be spoken about off the back of it. Do you think that the tournament will sort of mark a line in the sand for for major events in terms of um, the amount of scrutiny that came on that, that governing bodies are going to look at that and go, oh, do you know what? That's not what we want. Like, we don't want that level of scrutiny. And it will actually make them rethink their hosting decisions. Um, when we spoke to Jamie Gardner earlier on mm-hmm. the pod, he, he, he sort of thought FIFA won't really care. I, don't, I think it kind of feels quite immune to that. Which way do you like? Do you sort of see it going from the from your conversations? In terms of um, how rights owners and federations, you know, award their events and the the emphasis they place on human rights policies, etc. 
as part of their bidding criteria. I'm, I'm kind of with Jamie, to be honest. I don't think it's going to make a huge amount of difference. I think, obviously, recently the IOC updated its human rights kind of uh, policies around the awarding of major events and things, but there's always going to be that feeling that money talks. And, you know, if a bid has a, a backing from the powers that be and there's a lot of money uh, at play, you know, there's, there's always going to be that sense that that supersedes the kind of human rights element of it. So, yeah, it's going to be a real test moving forward, I think, as, yeah, as federations look to award their major events and, and spread them around the globe as well. Obviously, this was a big, important part for, for FIFA was to take, take it to the Arab world for the first time, to take the World Cup to Middle Eastern soil, to a Muslim country for the first time, uh, spread the event around. And that was obviously a focus for the previous regime. I think that's still going to be pressure on the powers that be in the decision makers with it by their members to actually you know spread the love in that way and so they've got to work around that and kind of reconcile the human rights elements and other um, potential you know areas of focus for the media and controversies and things reconcile that with the need to do that so I think they're going to have to um, look at everything on balance and in its entirety when they're awarding events as, as they always have done so I think yeah, I don't think this changes much. Long way around to get to the short answer. <laughs> but um, I'd encourage anyone to go and read the feature itself. There's uh, there's a lot to unpack there. But if we sort of look ahead to the next World Cup, are there lessons on a sort of what can what can USA, Canada and Mexico do that's like take lessons from Qatar and say this is really good? And also similarly, what would they kind of want to avoid for their own tournament in, mm. in, in the next in the next four years and building up to that? From I guess from a local organiser perspective, but also from a kind of a FIFA perspective. Yeah, I think um, <clears throat> I think the um, the next World Cup twenty twenty six in three different countries, you know, geographically far more sprawling, is going to you know that's a logistical challenge that Qatar didn't have, and as I said, they they made a virtual of the compact nature of the tournament. So, you know, there's a there's a definite challenge there. I think one of the things the local organisers for twenty twenty six could certainly do is not pull the rug from under one of their major sponsors on you know 48 hours before the tournament starts and things like that i don't think there'll be any issues there because obviously uh, you know alcohol con- consumption in the us and canada and mexico uh, it's not prohibited in the same way as it is in qatar so there's obvious things there but i think fifa has some work to do i think in in terms of managing its relations with its partners and partners will want to ensure that there's contractual assurances and things off the back of qatar to make sure things like this don't happen in future whatever that looks like those, those are probably the key key things. Um, yeah, in terms of what um, Qatar did do well, I think the the US, Canada and Mexico just have far more experience of hosting events of this scale. You know, they, they've hosted the World Cup before, they've hosted the Olympics, etc. So I'm not sure they'll be looking at Qatar for too many lessons. I imagine they sent a delegation to Qatar to kind of, uh, you know, for knowledge sharing and to focus on what Qatar did do well. But I imagine it's a different beast. It's a different. It's going to be a very different tournament. There's going to be 48 teams rather than 32, far more spread out. So they'll have their own considerations. And for FIFA, is there anything from like, uh, we've talked about them potentially kind of not really wanting to learn any any lessons or not wanting to take any criticism on board? Um, do you think there's stuff internally that they may that there may be discussion on? So like is there ways that we can avoid having to deal with this level of scrutiny again or avoid having these conversations? Mm -hmm. Or is it just a case that you think they're going to kind of keep on brushing past it in the way that they've always done? 
Yeah, I think it's the latter. <laughs> to be honest, I don't know. I think any federation and, and the people involved in making the decisions around where major events are staged are always going to talk up, you know, I guess the transparency of the processes. And I feel like change has already been made and we've seen it on the Olympic side of things. But, you know, rather than these votes coming down to, you know, very secretive ballots and things like that, there's more of a dialogue kind of and discussion around that. I think FIFA will probably implement that kind of approach moving forward. But yeah, I don't don't think there's going to be a huge sea change in how, how they approach the awarding of the World Cup. And on that slightly depressing down note, I think that's where we're going to end the podcast this week. Thank you very much for uh, for listening, and uh, we'll be back next week. Thank you, Mike. Thanks, Tom.